0: Hello friends and welcome to Out to Lunch, the place where an utterly brilliant person supplies me with great chat, and in return, I supply them with a great lunch. Today I am joined by the hardest working man in comedy, the co-writer and director of Jerry Spring of the Opera, a self-confessed gig junkie and formerly the half of Leon Herring, not called Herring. He's never happier when he's out on tour, which unfortunately, at time of recording, he isn't, as we're still in hard lockdown. So I cheer him up with some stunning Sri Lankan food, care of Kalamba at home. It's stand-up comedian writer, director and all-round lovely bloke, Stuart Lee. Are you a, an augmented comic? I am. I'm a cyber being now. But now I'm able
1: to have the anger of a partially deaf man. Hello,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Jay. Hello, Stuart. I love it when uh, bearded men hove into view <laughs> carrying large trays of food. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> i just sort this out because I'm absolutely terrified about dropping it all, having made it. Uh, I I should say at this point that normally what happens is we send a takeaway. But then I kind of stumbled, was offered this really pretty impressive spread of Sri Lankan food. Yeah. Which requires a little bit of heating up on your end, and I hope you didn't mind that. I can't thank you enough for this. I'm I'm going to announce what this is now. So um, we have both had a delivery of at-home food from Colamba, which is a Sri Lankan restaurant on Kingley Street in the centre of London. Which ones did you do, actually? Well, I've done the mutton curry Yes, and the dal Yeah. um,
1: and the uh, uh, roti um, and the rice. And I've got these little things as well. What are those? Toasted pole sambal.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got that. Yeah,
1: that's what I've done.
0: Well, hilariously, I think we've done something very similar because I've got the mutton curry and the dal. I've got the cashew and pea curry with coconut milk. Uh, the sambal, the roti with coconut and chilli. You've also got the rice with cardamom and coconut. Yeah. And, and that means I've put their little herbs in that they said to do as well. Oh, it's yeah. it, You know, it's, it's brilliantly distracting, isn't it? Yeah. Back in 2007, one of your bits of stand-up which went completely viral was the bit about the cab driver who said, I don't like gay people. Yeah. Don't like homosexuals, and you, because it's immoral, and you gave him a speech about morality being a very fickle thing and how it changes. And, uh, and he replied with, Well, you can prove anything with facts. Yeah. Yeah. Which was great. It was a great yeah. piece of material in 2007. Well, I, Were you basically predicting what was going to happen to the entirety of politics? I'm going to well, eat my does, mutton curry and you give me an explanation. Well, it does seem so because, I mean, I'm not saying,
1: I mean, really, we owe the credit to that man. And that was a man, he said that to me um, in 1997. That was actually said to me by a cab driver in that exact argument uh, on the roundabout where the um, by the Shepherds Bush, the Shepherds Bush roundabout up by right. the by the uh, fly over there. And um, but I mean, I suppose when Callie Conway started talking about there are facts and there are alternative facts and not necessarily untruths, it did seem that 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 had taken on a life of its own. And weirdly, I think for a lot of people that were writing comedy in the Noughties. Lots of things that we exaggerated for comic effect very quickly became standard practice. A bit like how Brassai and Chris Morris uh, sort of parodied styles of broadcasting that then appeared to be taken up by broadcasters <laughs> themselves as really effective ways of delivering information.
0: Now you have a, a major doc turning up on Sky Arts, and then it'll be available to view. King Rocker, yeah, yeah. about uh, Robert Lloyd of the Nightingales who is one of those eternal rock stars who never quite made it, I think it's fair to say, but kept with it. Yeah. Um, I think think you once described him as keeping a band going in the face of critical and commercial indifference, or he described himself like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm absolutely amazed at the enthusiasm that people have had to cover the film that me and uh, Michael Cumming, director of Brass Eye and Toast of London, have made about a rock musician most people have never heard of. The film's come out in the middle of all this. We were supposed to take it round cinemas, and we couldn't. Uh, Sky Arts picked it up, and it's, it's got lots of footage of people in places, eating and drinking and watching music in tiny packed rooms and walking around on snow-covered moors, um, and it's about a man sort of triumphing over the problems of his life and getting to do what he wants and growing all his own vegetables, and all those things seem weirdly important at the moment. It's, it's kind of feel-good
0: film about all the things we want to go back to as well. I don't want to get too analytical, but at times watching it, it did feel like you were also journeying into your past. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm analysing not. what it was you had become, because there was dear old Robert Lloyd, who has stayed true to the business of uh, suffering for his art, whereas you... Stuart, you're you're successful. I mean, I I, well, I know you don't really like it. Well, but- I, I am
1: I am successful, but lots of people that hate me don't know that, and um, always say that I'm doing things for publicity, and don't know that I can do a quarter of a million people on tour, and I just because I don't tend to go on things. I think probably that what you're getting at is if I was who I pretend to be, I wouldn't be me having an expensive Sri Lankan curry with Jay Rayner. I would be
0: um, at home betting on the horses and growing my own veg and um you've got your headphones on but yeah. with with age come certain changes hearing loss yeah do you now wear hearing aids all the time or I wear, I wear hearing
1: aids on stage and I wear hearing aids um if I'm watching films on the telly where I'd really like to hear the sound but I couldn't perform without them now is that because I, you wouldn't know whether you were funny well, you know what, you're not wrong. Because what happened was, about 10 years ago, I met my real father for the first time. And um, the first thing I noticed about him was that he had a hearing aid. And the first thing I said to him was, oh, you've got hearing aids. And the first thing he said to me was, yes, all the men in your family go deaf, and so will you. I went to the hearing place, and they said, yeah, you've got the, you know quite a, a lot missing. And then when they first got me my hearing aids, I remember my daughter was with me and she was about two or three at the time, and she was sitting on a little plastic seat, and suddenly I could hear the noise of the fabric on the seat, and honestly, it was like when Jack Nicholson becomes a wolf in that not-very-good horror film, I think it's called Wolf, and he's really right. super aware of sounds and smells. I'm amazing. Then I started doing gigs with it, and I realised that for years I'd had been i developed this sort of character of thinking the audience weren't laughing enough, particularly over there on my left, which it turned out was
0: where there was a sort of... Missing bit on that side, right? But you've been you've been doing that kind of material where you know picking out bits of the audience saying <laughs> yeah, no. they found that funny up there, not so much. Yeah, well, obviously... so then I'll explain the joke again. Know, and Are you saying but... that this was because you genuinely thought there were bits of the audience who couldn't laugh at you? Yeah, I did because when I
1: think about it, they're not going to sit in the same place in Melbourne and Edinburgh, are they? They're not always going to go and sit on my on my sort of left and that. But it kind of developed a bit out of that. Obviously, I was using it the fact that I felt that they it wasn't going as well as it should. And then it, I sort of developed this quite antagonistic character, I think partly because it was a, a bit of a struggle for me, more than I realised. And I remember the first couple of gigs I did with him, I put hearing aids in at the stand in Edinburgh, which is only a small room.
0: Oh, it's a tiny, I know that space, yeah. But
1: I love it, and a I, I love lovely room to play. But I I could hear thing people talking, and I thought it was in the room, and it was someone... You know, in a pub on the other side of the road or something (laughs) It's an incredible thing. But I, I I love the uh, what it gives you. I mean, now I think I, with hearing aids on stage, I hear better than uh, uh, normally, and so I can, I can hear different tiny things happening in the room. Are you an augmented comic? I am. I'm a cyber being now. But now I'm able to have the anger of a part of a partially deaf man. But the functional prowess of a hearing man, if I put my hearing aids in. But I don't want to wear them all the time. I find the noise of the world in cities too much. Are you eating the mutton curry now? I am, and it's stupendous. It's, it? it's got a lovely sort of dry heat to it. I'm going to add some of this to it, see that-
0: Sambol. Oh yeah, now That's the um, the Sini Sambal is made with lots of red chilies and caramelised onions and fried coconut.
1: Yeah, I'm going to and put a bit it... of that on it, and I'm going to um, see what that's like. I'm going to try all the condiments individually. This
0: honestly, this is so it's so lovely to have this. Meeting your your birth father because you were adopted. And discovering that the hearing loss was a part of, you know, your genetic inheritance. Yeah. Did it set off any other questions in your head or, were you, or had you never been particularly troubled by Well, I by just did it at stuff? the time
1: because my, my wife was um, pregnant and um, I suddenly realised when I looked at her every day that having a baby was quite a big deal.
0: What month did the realisation that you were going to be a father? About nine, <laughs> about nine months. About nine months. That's <laughs> the head was coming out. No, I realised yeah. that it was
1: <laughs> quite a big deal and probably people that had had one maybe you owed it to them to tell them that it was you were all right you know um it's worked out pretty well my, I've got um two half sisters now that I get on really well with who have been really really great um um my, my uh, one of my sisters had been um using a, a film of me making fun of Tesco's in um Armando Iannucci's time trumpet for several years before we met uh which and she used it as part of a presentation about marketing in her job <laughs> it's so weird, like that uh, was already kind of part of a, her life filter. yeah, but other than that uh you know it's been it's been fine, yeah, and um my my stepfather my um my adopted mother's second husband um died earlier this year, and the the you know the funeral will be obviously reduced of covid but it really shows you what an elastic notion a, a family is for all the people that will come together via that my wife on the other hand is um got eight brothers and sisters of part of a massive extended um irish family my friend ben Moore, when we got married he said the wedding it was like the nolan sisters were there It was like you'd married into the nolan sisters <laughs> I,
0: so, I think i think we ought to give your wife a name given that yeah. she's not unknown herself it's bridget christie the comedian yeah yeah so here's what i want to know Two comedians in lockdown, no gigs. I mean, what are you? She's writing a thing, right? And so she's been really busy. So last year I did the, uh,
1: I did the homeschooling, but that's all right. cool, working out better now. But apart from a little window and a stop for a bit, I've performed hundreds of nights a year since I was twenty. You know, and um, and it, and it is like it is like the, the chemical withdrawal of the adrenaline and the stress was very strange. we were lucky because. I came down halfway through a tour, so I'm financially all right. Now, I know lots of people in music and comedy are having a terrible time because there's all sorts sure. of cracks that you fall between. But, yeah, it's really, it is really weird. And also, you're really frustrated because so many funny things are happening or tragically comic f- funny things, and you want to do stuff about them. I've gotta, I'm going to have to rewrite half of the show when I have to fulfil the obligation of the last fifty dates, half of it is a nostalgic look at the news of late two
0: thousand and nineteen. <laughs> <laughs> a, a lot has happened uh, since then. That said, if there was any you know comic on the sea on the on the circuit who could rise to that challenge, it'd be you. You have just described once. I think it was one of your nephews who said to you, "Are you actually famous?" And you yeah. replied. Well, yes, I do x amount of television, and I'm also the comic who has written more new material than any comedian alive <laughs> in Britain today, just to kind of freak them out. Yeah, well, it was funny because he's never heard it? of me,
1: my nephew, and um, you know, in a, in a professional capacity. And I thought it would be funny, instead of being modest, to just answer, you know, and maybe, and I may maybe said the Times has called me the world's greatest living stand-up as well. But normally I wouldn't, but I just thought sometimes you get a bit worn down don't you it's it's hard having to explain yourself all the time the
0: volume uh, that work ethic of not running out the same material what's the fear is it the fear of other people saying oh God it's just Stuart Lee doing that same thing again or do you just get bored of yourself i I just love being on the road
1: and I've been on the road for most of thirty years and um I like coming home as well but I like being on the road and I like having to have ideas and I like being busy and if I'm not I, I worry that I'm going to just petrify. Um, so it's not a particularly, uh, you know, a, a moral thing or a creative thing. It's just a, a panicked kind of
0: drive and um, and a fear of stopping. But your relationship with the audience has always intrigued me because you you have said, you know, that you don't think about the audience. But once you're on stage, they're responding to you. So you must in some way be thinking about the audience, thinking okay. this is funny, or or are you actually thinking this makes me laugh, maybe it'll make somebody else laugh? Yeah, that's what I think. That's what I think. But, I mean, I do, I do respond to the audience in as much as I think about them as consumers, and I think about
1: them as people that have got a babysitter, and, you know, you have to do your best. But I don't think about them in terms of just because something doesn't work, that's no reason to not carry on trying to do it. And they might have to... They might have to suffer
0: that does not show shows where I'm working it out, but I think there's a contract. They understand that. But That's one of the things you do. You deconstruct what you're doing while you're doing it. Yeah. You know, I'm about to do this bit, and then about quarter to 10, I'll do a bit which will go on for too long. But you know Um, what?
1: Just giving you a warning. Beryl Reid did that in the 50s, and you know you sort of think you've invented something or you're part of a generation that invented something. Beryl Reid's act used to go, Well, I was talking to my mother the other day. Well, I wasn't. She wasn't there. But I need to say that I was for this joke to work. (laughs) And every bit doubles back on itself. And it's the sort of thing that us university graduates who've studied postmodernism, we think, oh, yeah, what if the routine was aware of its own existence and was doubling back and commenting on itself? But in that working-class art form, they'd already done that 70 years ago. I did see a lot of people from that generation... As a child in pantomimes, which was now seems incredible. I saw um Morgan Wise's uh, I saw the two Ronnies only tour, live tour my mum took me when I was about seven. I remember that being impossibly hilarious. And I just I remember falling off my seat into the into the aisle whilst watching that. You know. I, I never saw Dave Allen live, which I wish I had done. Yeah, no I, I... but. I met him. I, I met him. At, well, do you remember when the, the BBC in the late 80s, early 90s was still allowed to have parties for its staff? Um, yeah. And I managed to go to one. And in the good showbiz anecdote fashion, I got terribly drunk, fell over at the coat place. And the person picking me up and putting my coat
0: on was Dave Allen saying, There you are. Which I sort of think I love that fact that that happened now. That's better than seeing him, I think. As he put your coat on you, did you? I fucking
1: love you. Or, or, <laughs> I can't. I hope so. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? It's sort of. I get panicked by being stopped by people, as I worry that they're people that hate me as well, and I never know what they're going to say. And certainly, there've been times when you know it has. Been, it's been very tense. People stop you, and something kicks off. But I. I has always, that
0: genuinely happened with you? People yeah, don't. once
1: or twice. Yeah, and so i I always. am very cautious when people start talking to me out of nowhere. But I do. I, but I do think if you see someone and you love their work, you should tell them because you'd be surprised. Sometimes it can really just save the day when people yeah. are really worried or they've got that memory. And I realised that for some years, I've, I've been going into a charity shop in Camden and, and failing. I mean, did you want to
0: buy anything? Or just, I, well, I've been you just failing like to, to
1: place the man who worked there. And I knew I knew who he was. And then suddenly one day I was getting out of my car, I was dropping my kid off, and he was coming out of the charity shop with his dog. And I went... Oh, excuse me. I so I've just realised who you are. You're Nick Knox from The Vibrators, aren't you? And he went, yeah, do I know you? And I went, yeah, when I was in a rubbish band in the 80s, one of our only ever gigs was supporting you. And he went, well, look at you. You've got a car and I've got nothing. And then he went off and I thought, <laughs>
2: that's <laughs> I brilliant. He's giving me a
1: punk rock anecdote. That's what you want, isn't it? You don't want him to go, oh, thank you very much. You want him to just be like,
2: great. Hi there. I'm Ollie. I'm the executive producer on Out to Lunch, and this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Imagine you had the time it takes to have lunch, gifted to you each day, an extra hour. What would you do with that time? For me personally, after listening to Out to Lunch in a swanky new restaurant, I'd love to spend more time actually sampling the food there myself. Now, a lot of us wish we had more time, but in reality, if something is really important, then we make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. It can help you clear your head and take control of your life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Plus, it's entirely online to save those precious minutes. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already... BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash outtolunch. That's betterhelp.com slash outtolunch.
0: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories. And we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Was comedy always a thing for you? Um, Were you one of those who got those, you know, 1970s Comedy albums. I, I, well, I did. I mean, I had um, I had Monty Python live at Drury Lane and the Not Nine O'Clock
1: News one and stuff. But I think really the thing for me was when I was at school, I wanted to be a, a writer. Probably, you know, I wouldn't have minded writing comedy. I probably wanted to write... In fact, I can see in the background, I don't know if I've got it out, but I can see there's a little book there of um, poetry by teenagers that got published, and I'm, I'm in that. Yeah, as is um, Michael Gove, is in it as well.
0: Um, there's some really oh, odd. Oh, oh, hang on, hang on. Can you grab it and read Michael yeah. Gove's poem to us? Yeah, all right. This wasn't <laughs> planned, by the way. I'm just having a, I'm having a
1: a clear out, you know. Michael Gove's poem from 1984.
0: Can we just be absolutely clear? He would have been. Yeah, he'd have been about 17, 16. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so. Let's see what th- was on the poem. This Michael is a poem Gove's in mind. which. Uh,
1: He resents boys who play sport for their prowess with women, but um, warns them that one day they will realise that he is better than them. It's called Larking About. Facile words in flexible mouths play games that no one can win. Hmm. (laughs) The verbal delights of social engagements are wearing audibly thin. The constant retailing of lewd innuendos assails your sensitive ears. The score is the number of women you've had while still keeping down all those beers. The vomit lies not on the floor, though. They keep it stored safe in their heads for constant recycling at parties on the way to acquiring more beds. Their clothes are as sharp as their talking. Their hair is impeccably styled. They are the beautiful people, but in their mouths, beauty has died. Oh, it's all right. But I think it's just weird because it's like got a, it's got a streak of vengeance in it. Well, it and, really um, has, hasn't it? Isn't and I it? wonder, you know, you look at his career and it it seems like it's it seems all there, like, isn't it? Yeah, it's all
0: there that sort of yeah. bitter twisted you think you're so much better than me. Yeah. But you're ugly and you. I'm I, I I will win in the end. So mm. that's poetry by Michael Gove. Um it strikes me as uh, that you've actually read that recently. You found it and read it recently, didn't you? I did, yeah. I read it recently because um, something came up about
1: it. I can't remember exactly. Oh, I know what it was. I was writing. I've written a piece for uh, uh, the Philip Larkin Society Journal. And I noticed that one of the poetry contributors to it, Kieran Wynne, uh, was also in that. So I dug it out to see what he'd written um, as a teenager. Now he's a very acclaimed poet. So it's, it's an interesting little book that. But that's what I wanted to do. I thought I wanted to be... A sort of a writer i might have written comedy but i didn't imagine i'd perform and then in 1984 uh, i went to see the fall who i loved and, and back then you know uh, there was alternative comedy was happening in london but it wasn't really in the provinces you know you'd, you'd see a, a report on it on some youth program on bbc2 but you couldn't really see it but you sometimes saw people opening for bands and this comic ted chippington was opening for the fall who just completely absolutely changed my life because he he, he he didn't really have any stuff. He just had an attitude and it was very provocative and he came on and did basically the same joke over and over again and wound everyone up and half the room thought it was hilarious. And, you know, you know, you meet people a bit older than me. They go, oh, I saw the Sex Pistols in the Free Trade Hall in Manchester and it changed my life. And I saw Ted Chippington opening the floor and I thought, wow, you can do stand-up and you don't have to be, like, Ben Elton like running around and being positive, and you don't have to be like an old school club comment. You can be anything you want if you call it. You can be this strange figure, sort of blocking the blocking the process of what you think the act is.
0: And that was it. It was like a light bulb in my, you know, being switched on. It should be said that you can see bits of Ted Chippington in King Rocker. You've got him in yeah. there, haven't you?
1: You've got him in that. Well, he was he was on the, the Nightingales record label. I mean, but brilliantly, he was supposed to be um, interviewed. Uh, for the film, and he just never turned up, which, of course, is perfect. We went all the way down to Totnes. He just never came. He didn't. He wouldn't even do an interview properly, and I've asked everyone involved in it if they can do any publicity stuff, and he's come back to me saying the only thing he'll do was the
0: Channel 4 uh, lunchtime show, Packed Lunch, if I can get him on that. <laughs> <laughs> but you did have a footage from a previous interview that you'd done with him. Yeah, I did, yeah, luckily, yeah. from about
1: 20 years ago, yeah. Yeah, and they, I I'd say the, uh, the,
0: the cut to that is masterful. In the uh, yeah, in the yeah, well, it was for the um for uh, the culture show. You see, Ted Chippington. You go off to Oxford. Yeah, um, how was that in the eighties?
1: Okay, I, I can't remember after I left, I, I had a gig in nineteen ninety with Sean Hughes, who's um died recently, yeah. uh, sadly. Um, but he was always a very spiky character. He was a spiky character right until the end. And um, we would we had a gig at Oxford Polytechnic, and I went there with him. And all the time he was saying, saying to me, he was going, "Oh, they're all snobs." He was going, "And they are secret dining societies full of people." Well, and Oxford hiring, Poly, you know, at the Oxford University, and they oh. hire in prostitutes, and they have champagne, and they smash up restaurants, and they all go into government. I was going, "No, there aren't." He's going, "Yeah, there are." I was going, "Look, if that was the case, I would have heard about it, wouldn't I, when I was there?" And of course, there was that. But I, no, we didn't know because we, we weren't in that world of people. So even no. within that university, there was a whole strata of people that you'd never meet, and they're the people that now run the country. <laughs> but it pretty, you know—it was a great town to be in then. Eighty-six to eighty-nine, it was a fantastic music scene. It was the start of what became, you know, Radiohead and Supergrass. So brilliant local bands. Then Talulah Lagosh, whose lead singer is now top obe winning economist and another member of two gosh won a turner prize so they were really like the brain trust of indie punk bands was a great swerve driver who were uh, like a my bloody valentine kind of noise group but was a fantastic town to be around they seem to be playing all the time and also there was a guy called tony brennan who again sadly died about 18 months ago end of last year start of last year he 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 knew that sort of student comedy, in terms of everyone having a bow tie and singing a song, an Alan Corran type song about punting along the river, was probably on the way out. And he set up a, a sort of um, he set up a gig, like a normal comedy gig, where you you did stuff every couple of weeks in a cellar, and he, he and it was great, you know. And, he, and I started doing stand up to student crowds in an environment that wasn't unlike what proper comedy cubs are like. So you know, I owe Tony Brennan a massive amount for. Setting that up. Uh, When When
0: did you meet Richard? Richard Richard Herring.
1: Herring. I met him in um, December 1986 at a party for people that wanted to help out at this venue. And um, then we, we wrote some student shows together. And then when we came to London... I mean, I was always doing stand-up from the start. I was Hackney Empire, New Act of the Year, <laughs> 1990.
0: It's 30 years ago. How is your lunch? The producer always likes me to check in yeah, on, really on the food. Great. I'm, really great. I'm eating the roti and the uh, sandal by itself now because I've yeah. cleaned the bowl. But actually, if you look back on it, it all did seem to go brilliantly. You and Richard were pretty much, weren't you on, were you on radio, pretty much straight out of Oxford? And then you were on telly pretty much after that. We were on telly about six years after leaving. But, yeah, it does seem ridiculous. So you didn't, get, you didn't really get paid like people do today. There is one thing I, I do want to ask you about, which is yeah. um, that on the day-to-day yeah. with the Armando Iannucci team with Chris Morrison, yeah. Dave Knyder and, and uh, Steve Coogan, did you create Alan Partridge? We didn't create Alan Partridge,
1: but um, there, was a, there was a show called On the Hour on the Radio, I remember on the and app. the writers for that were me and Rich and David Quantic from the Enemy and yep. Stephen Wells from the Enemy. who was also a very funny performance poet. We were the four writers, and Armando Iannucci obviously wrote stuff, and Chris Morris provided his own finished sort of packages. Really, so when they wanted a sports reporter, Steve came in. Coogan came in with this voice. I don't know who thought of the name Alan Partridge and the persona. It suggested those sorts of people so you can't be you can't be you can't claim to have created it and we did write all the early alan partridge material and the work that was done on a backstory for alan partridge about the production company and where he lived and whatever that was sort of done in conjunction with armando peter bainham and um patrick Marlborough at a later date we're not involved in it after that because when the when the series was going to go to telly our um manager John Thode of Avalon rightly or wrongly thought that we should get not just money for writing it but also ownership of some of the characters which we'd co-created in case they had a further life that wasn't going to happen in the end so it didn't and I don't know if that was right or wrong to this day although it is weird because there's a number of characters that have survived with names that I've like Brian O'Hanrahan the (laughs) reporter that's actually I used to get football stickers because I didn't like football and I used to make these freakish characters out of them by sticking all their faces together in a sort of collage and giving them really long, complicated names. And Brian O'Hanrahan is actually one of the... <laughs> he's one of the footballers that I made in um, 1985 or something. You know, so I, I, I do know which bits, you know, came from us. But it was an amazing experience being with those people. I, I always thought that I'd fallen out really badly with Armando about it, and I was always worried that... um there was that hanging, hanging over me, yeah. And then then I read a biography, I read a book about British comedy in the 90s called Disgusting Bliss. And in it, there was an interview with Armando where he said that he and I had made up on um, a flight to Glasgow to perform a radio series there, where the turbulence had been so bad that I had said to him that I wanted to clear the air. What, before you died out. in a fire? Yeah, and I have absolutely no memory of that at all. <laughs> so I must have been really drunk or something. But, but then I read it and I thought, what a nice bloke I am.
0: To have have done that, you know, it's so good. Well done to me. I think I'm done with savoury. They sent us a cake. Did you get your cake? Did you bring any of that with you? Oh, I didn't. I can go and get it. Why not? Then we can both do cake while I drag you down another way. Dessert-wise, they sent us a love cake, which is a brilliantly sweet thing made with lots of candied peel and spices and so forth. Becoming a father, you've suggested, has made you hesitate over certain things.
1: Oh God, yeah.
0: When you offered a part in a film?
1: I was offered a part in a film. Yeah, it's coming out actually, um, next week. It's the Alan McGee biopic. The the guy who set up Creation Records. I was offered the part of a heavy set bearded man. Okay. Who comes into a meeting. Yeah. Takes down another man's trousers, has sex with him and then goes out. And I uh, thought if you if I'd done loads of films, right, and yeah. I'd done that part, it would might be all right. But if you've only ever done one film, and that's the only part you've done, it looks a bit mad. And also, I, I, I worry already. And I, and I know for a fact that there've been occasions where the kids' relationships with their friends have suffered because people, parents or whatever, haven't liked things that I've done, uh, and they make certain assumptions about you as a result of that. And you know, I couldn't. I just. Felt I can't really have that out there. But <laughs> yeah. But then there's also other things I haven't done. I've just sort of. I've not got as involved as I would in certain political or campaigning sorts of things that I would have done 15 years ago because I don't want that flack to be drawn from from crazy people, you know, and that's um, cowardice, I suppose, but it's also about concern for the, the people near you. I don't feel I'm, you know, really equipped to, to deal with it. I mean, some Labour politicians live over there about three streets over who, you know, during the Brexit campaign when Tom was murdered, I know they had to have all the windows and doors and everything of their very modest three bedroom house sort of uh strengthened and uh, and you know, put with security. I I've got a couple of people that I have to have on a sort of watch list who occasionally have to flag up to schools, kids' schools and stuff, but um I was I'm, I'm as well known as I want to be. That's why I don't really do much publicity for things. I'm, I'm really enjoying doing things at the moment because I feel like I'm not doing it on my behalf. I'm doing it for, for this Nightingales film that Michael worked on and robs in, and it doesn't feel like it's me, you know, but it is me
0: because you've just talked to me about
1: no. it for half an hour,
0: so it no, was me, it, no, it uh, definitely, definitely is you. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know how people cope with it, really. I mean, you, you've made the point that you, you play to audiences of a quarter of a million on a tour. Yeah. But you do that through 50 dates, whereas yeah. there are some comments who can do that through 12 dates at the O2. This current tour is about
1: 120, 150 dates. None of the rooms are bigger than 2,000. It means I can keep tickets to a price that I would have thought was reasonable to pay if I were um, a punter. It means that you can still, in those rooms, get a frisson of what happens in a good club room where individuals shout things out or a mood can be changed or whatever. The only room i found unplayable was the big arena in um, Glasgow. All right, It was just too much like a stadium, you know, and, well, and, I, and I just couldn't, I couldn't, couldn't create attention. I couldn't
0: talk to individuals and whatever. So it's about that. whether I'll do it forever, I don't know, because, you know. I mean, you once said that you couldn't cope with the seeding of control required to be a huge success. Well, do you look at the lives of these, you know, vast £4 million a year stars and think, Christ, that looks like hard work. I haven't got a lot of the skills that
1: are required to be those people either. And I don't really feel part of that. I always think that the project should fit where it's landing, you know, and on the back burner, I've got an idea of doing 20 dates around 8,000 seaters rather than 150 dates around smaller rooms. And it's sort of an idea for, you know, they use big screens and stuff for having a different person to me on the screen, like a younger actor. That's me perhaps operated by motion capture. Or you know how you used to go to things in stadiums and the sound was always so bad that you were getting the sound like um, 10 seconds later at the back of the room. So I wondered about what about actually having different material going on in different parts of the room. So I'd sort of wonder about taking the stadium comedy experience and making it even worse than it is, or, you know, sort of really playing up the um, all the problems with it. And then, you know, the people are really far away on the stage. Yeah. So instead of me being on the stage, I have like a tiny model of me that's operated that really is only about that big, and you can only see it. Well, only three, on the, inches,
0: three inches tall. Yeah,
1: inside a shoebox lit by a torch or something. But, of course, in the meantime... We need to get through this tour as it is, whenever it ends up being. Don't worry, ladies and gentlemen, tickets are still valid, assuming your venue has uh, survived. Then write the next one in what will be a very different world and we'll see how people feel about going out to live things and how that works. You know, it's exciting in a
0: way. It is. I like to hear the optimism. Stuart, I think all that remains for me to say to Stuart Lee, uh, to quote The Sun, the worst comedian in Britain as funny (laughs) as bubonic (laughs) plague. Post- the man who said that I think
1: ended up going to, uh, to prison as part of that um, investigation into phone hacking. Oh, really? Excellent. I could
0: be wrong. Yeah. 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 Stuart, thank you very, very much for staying in for lunch for me. I really do appreciate well, it. Thank you very much for having me. It's been like meeting someone, which has been great
1: uh, under these conditions. And also, I absolutely loved this food. And one of the first things I'll do when life returns to normal is go to Columba. And I'm absolutely happy to say that the um, the mutton curry was absolutely superb. it's amazing and if
0: you want to read more about it i actually reviewed columbus so just google my name and, and its right. name and you can you can read about it um Stuart, right. I, I hope the rest of the day treats you well and thanks for having me. your kids enjoyed the rest of the London yeah they will do yeah i'll do it tonight great thanks a lot getting comedy material out of a pandemic oh, I think Stuart Lee was made for that job um, and his film about the Nightingales King Rocker is available to stream via Now TV and Sky Go um, we ate mutton curry and very much more thanks to Calamba at Home that's uh, K-O-L-A-M-B-A at Home they do all sorts of Sri Lankan meal kits including a vegan version you just heat it up uh, and a big thanks to everyone who's rated and commented on this podcast it really does help us to keep making them do share your favourite episodes with friends and dig through our archive for more i've chatted to lots of other brilliant comedians if that rings your bells and blows your whistles out to lunch is a something else And jay rayner production the music was written arranged and performed by me jay rayner and robert rickenberg the recording engineer was josh gibbs and the mix engineer was gulliver tickle jemima rathbone was a sister producer the producer is selena rehm and the exec producer is darby doris additional production is from steve ackerman next time it's the one-time pop star turned author and broadcaster and country vecker it's the Reverend Richard Coles.
1: I was thinking of my, my nephew, Oliver, who is um, just 18. He's so sort of going, all oh, right, Uncle Richard, are you in a band? And I went, yeah. So I showed him a video, and he looked at it kind of approvingly. And at the end he said, you know, even then you can tell there was a vicar struggling to get out. <laughs>